0: Today's scripture is Mark 3, 1 through 6. Jesus, to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can take a seat. Thanks, Allison. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Sean. I'm the lead pastor and teach pastor here for Redemption Peoria. I say every week that Redemption Church is one church, uh, nine different congregations spread throughout the state of Arizona. Each congregation is elder led, lead pastor led. So I'm the lead pastor here. Aaron Daly's the lead pastor at Alhambra. Luke Simmons, the lead pastor at Gateway. We've got convictions as to why we do that. So if you are new, feel free to ask us. Uh, Myself and the elders will be out uh, by the Connect Desk. I was uh, pondering just a bizarre thing before we get into the message um, that we gather here, that we come together. Like, think about it. Everyone has like on their calendar in this room or the alarm goes off and we get here. And, um, and some of you are engaged. Some of you have families growing. Some of you guys are dating, maybe with the hopes of being engaged or whatever it is. You, you're on a trajectory in your life and you're coming to church every single week. We're all coming to church every single week and we're basing our life around Jesus. (laughs) And to me, as I was like, just thinking about this, it was just random. It was one of those weird thoughts. But that is like a congruence. There's something happening within all of us. If I was to go, why are you here? What, what, what is, you know, Joe, what makes you come here? He's like, well, well Jesus. Jesus is doing something within me, has, has done something within me, and that brings me. And, and so there's something that's just weird. It's this weird deal. So take that for whatever it's worth. I just was thinking about that. That's just really weird. We're here because of Jesus, and we all have our own stories. I don't know what just happened, but that's just bizarre. Okay, <laughs> so... I've been trying to start uh, these times because if you're not aware, we are in this series called Love Walked Among Us. We're looking at the gospel, specifically looking at the person of Jesus. So we go through books in the Bible, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, but we're doing this a little bit differently, especially how the, the gospels are written out. We're um, honing in on the person of Jesus and looking at how he operates. And um, I've been trying to share a story for us to get our mind around why we need to do this. Uh, and instead of sharing a story, I'll just kind of share experientially. What has gone on for the last four years? If you're not aware, four years ago today is what was our pre launch service. Next week is our first official, like, four year anniversary. And in the four years that uh, we've planted Redemption Peoria, what I have come to find out, and the elders can uh, for sure attest to this, is that um, there are many moments where someone will hear me say something or read something online on our website about Redemption Peoria, like a a doctrinal statement, you know, whatever it is, and just take that. And then just not ask any questions, just assume all these things, and then just let it be what it is, and then hate us forever, okay? And, and, and it's not, this isn't a moment to be defensive or whatever like that, but my point is, what happens is, like, you'll read something about, you know, somebody had just uh, recently critiqued us, it's a long story, but they called us a, a charismatic megachurch. And I was like, well, no, and no, um... But we, we, don't, you know, we don't have an opportunity to defend that at all, right? So it's just taken as is, and it's just kind of gone away. And you feel in that moment extremely misrepresented, uh, and it's frustrating. I think I've walked uh, with people a lot to recognize, you know, there have been people in our congregation who even nationally have been misrepresented in a moment for something they did was believed right, and I got so mad. And I think there's something within the human psyche and who we are that when we're mistrue, like even what you see within your kids, um, I see this all the time within my kids where someone, one of the kids is saying, and I share that is every time this happens, specifically over the last couple years, it has been my correlating to Jesus moments. Like there's two things that, that I feel like it correlates. One, while Jesus is here on the earth, he's clearly misrepresented. I mean, clearly, people are accusing him of all kinds of things. Him going to the cross, right? Taking on, intentionally taking on misrepresentation, uh, taking on our sins, even though he's not a sinner. Uh, this is, but, but furthermore, as the narrative goes on, Jesus dies, he's raised from the dead, he sits at the, Father, uh, at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and, and so here he is. And I couldn't help but think, there are many moments where Jesus is watching from heaven going, I feel misrepresented. Like you've painted me as this political Jesus, that's not true. You, you've painted me as this liberal Jesus, that, that, that's not true. I, I, and so it feels like over and over, as we gather, there, maybe there's a tie, I didn't even mean to do that, but as we gather around who Jesus is, base our life on who Jesus is, um, maybe we should take the time to get it right and not allow Jesus to go, I feel like I'm being misrepresented right there. Because you know, I, I know what it's like to be misrepresented and how frustrating that can be. And so what we're doing is we're taking 100 days leading up to Easter to study the person of Jesus so we can at least say with integrity, well, this is what I believe. This is because of this text or what I learned here. This is how I, I, I believe Jesus operates, and, and I don't want to misrepresent him. So that's what we're doing. And this morning, we're in Mark chapter 3. So if you want to open your Bibles, let's get at it. We got six verses to cover. I feel like we'll have enough time to, to do it all. Um, so I'm going to read this. Uh, uh, fairly quickly. Let me just read the, the first line, and then that will kind of jump us off. I'm not gonna be able to do this. Button to the top is killing me, and this hoodie's killing me. Even though it's Patagonia, I know hipsters, I look so cool. Um, <laughs> let's take all this off. Um, all right, so let's start verse uh, 1, uh, Mark chapter 3. Again, he, obviously is the narrative of Christ. If, you don't, if you're not familiar with uh, the, the Mark's uh, Gospels, first actually book in the Bible we ever went through as a church, and Um, it's, it uses the word immediately a lot. I mean, it just, Mark pushes this narrative along a lot. And so Jesus is the one we're following as this narrative continues to progress. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. So we're going to stop there real quickly. A few things on this. So most likely in the synagogue, these, this outer court area, Uh, Jesus is there, spends a lot of time there. The Pharisees are there, spend a lot of time there. And there's this man with this withered hand. Luke 7 and Matthew 12 have these, they're they're called the synoptic gospels. They're in sync with one another. They have uh, the same parallel accounts. In Luke's gospel, who's a doctor, mentions that it's his right hand that's withered. That's important because culturally right hands are uh, far more uh, looked at looked upon as helpful. You do things with your right hand more than you would with your left. Uh, Left hand is far more of a a dishonorable thing. Uh, And so anyway, all that to say, here's this man. He has a a, a withered hand. His right hand is withered. And actually in Greek is the word exros, which is the word dry. It's not like it is crippled, um, but it's like dried up. It's a dry, a lot of broken people. Physically broken, emotionally broken, spiritually broken. We have the widow of Nain, right? She's a widow, and now she's lost her son. Uh, We saw the blind man. Last week we saw a woman who was sinful, looked down upon uh, from Simon. And now we have this withered hand. Jesus is always, let's just call it what it is, always associating himself with the other. Always associating himself with the other. So when it says, and again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. So Jesus and this man with a withered hand. And that's the only description we get of this man. That's all we get from him. Okay. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. So they might accuse him. So we got to know who the, they is that they is the Pharisees. Let me read it on the Sabbath. So they might accuse him. I just want to read this line and say one quick thing about it. This is the narrative of the Gospels. I mean, all we find again and again, the relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees is the Pharisees are following everywhere Jesus goes, and they're watching him. And the hope would be the same way that if there's a police officer, a cop follows you, like just says, I'm just going to follow them till their whole way to work. And I'm going to wait until they mess up, till they pull, pull, uh, and then I'm going to pull them over. And inevitably, because no one's a perfect driver, right, you're going to get caught. You're going to do something. Not turn your blinker on in time, whatever it is. And, and they're hoping in the same way to follow Jesus to find something wrong. But Jesus don't play that. He don't mess up, right? So they keep trying to uh, pigeonhole Jesus into this sinner, not a prophet deal, but you don't play games like that. So this is kind of the narrative uh, that we find between uh, Jesus and the Pharisees. Verse 3 says this. And he said to the man, so this is Jesus. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. So now we have the Pharisees, we have Jesus, sees the withered man, he does the same exact thing he did with the blind man, the same exact thing with the widow of Nain, the same exact thing that he did with the, the sinful woman. He draws attention now to this person. So he calls the, withered, the man with the withered hand over. Verse 4, and he said to them, we're going to have to camp on this for, for a second, and he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Okay. So it's the Sabbath, which is important. We've actually talked about the Sabbath in the last four years twice, specifically how we can understand as Christians what we're supposed to do with the Sabbath. In the parallel account in Mark or in uh, Matthew 12, Jesus actually answers his own question. So his question here in Mark is: Is it lawful to do good or harm on the Sabbath? To do good or bad? What, what's better? He actually says in Matthew 12: Listen to this. Just you have to hear it. If any of you has a sheep and falls into it, and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath. Will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is, is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So for narratival reasons, we have a continued part of the conversation where Jesus actually ends up answering and saying, well, it's obvious. We have the Sabbath. It's, it's a good thing. So let's stop real quick because a lot of us don't understand what the Sabbath is. So let me give you a three-minute uh, kind of contextual synopsis. Um, what we find in uh, Exodus chapter 31 is this law around specifically the Sabbath. And and the Sabbath begins far before that, even before the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. What we have is, if you're not familiar with this story, which I think most of us probably are, and this is an opportunity to give life. If God, here's God, who doesn't get tired, can rest after six days of work and take that seventh day to rest, you as man can do that. And so what he ends up doing is he puts laws around it. So the Ten Commandments, right, we have this, you are going to honor the Sabbath. As my people, you'll honor the Sabbath. Well, in Exodus 31, we're told, and this is where the Pharisees are on edge about this, that if you don't honor the Sabbath, you're going to be killed, right? So the Pharisees are right, sitting in the temple going, you should not be working on the Sabbath because it's right for us to kill you. But here's where everything needs to get flipped around. And this is where the the misunderstanding of all of this takes place between what Jesus is doing and what the Pharisees are doing. Early on, God is declaring to his people, take this Sabbath so that you can recognize, one, I provide. Yes, you could work seven days. You could make more money that day. But do you trust me? Number two, you're not better than me. I, I worked for six days. I have this. Seven, you're not stronger than me. And and here's what's crazy: if you don't honor it, we're going to have to kill you. Exodus 31. Bizarre. Don't have time to unpack right now. But check this out: even if you don't honor it right now, you're going to die anyway. Eventually, you're going to work yourself to death. And so here's what's crazy: the Sabbath was meant to give life, but in this moment, it seems like the Pharisees are turning it on its head. And, and where life is meant to be provided for a man with a withered hand, they're not doing that. They, they have now taken the Sabbath and have become a slave to their own laws. By definition, this is what we call legalism. I love what Calvin says about this. Um, I, I think he, yeah, I just think he, he nails it. Um, he says this, uh, God intended the Sabbath to be Advent that law that, that, um, this beautiful way of life can be interjected into your system. So let, let's talk about what this looks like in the Myers home Friday. Uh, uh, the kids come home from school, uh, at five o'clock They usually get home around four at five o'clock in the Myers household. This is how it works. We light a Sabbath candle. So for 24 hour period, we light this candle and it will stay lit until Saturday around five. Okay. Now, at that point, what happens is, so in the Myers household, there's no technology during the week. They don't get video games, no TV, anything like that. I'm not saying you're wrong if you don't. That's just how we operate. So what do you think happens for the kids when it's Sabbath time? They get their their two hours of of video game time. I promise you, five o'clock on Friday, you roll to the Myers house, you're going to find the two boys playing Fortnite, okay? That's just going to happen, okay? I'm good with it, right? Now, my wife has her own things. Who knows what Anna and Eve are doing? They're probably just running in circles somewhere, okay? But you know what I do? I go into my room. I go into the drawer. I get my work clothes on. I get my work shirt on. I get my work shoes on. I get my work pants on. And I find something to build in the house. Or maybe I dig a trench. Uh, you know what I did? You know what I did uh, this, this uh, Sabbath, this last Friday? is, uh, the birches, uh, Mike and candy birch gave me a bunch of pavers. I didn't need them, but they were free. So I was like, I'm just going to pave everywhere in my house. Okay. So I went and got sand and I just started making trails all through my house with pavers. Okay. Now, now here's, what's interesting. Um, what I'm doing on the Sabbath, you could easily point to and go, but you're working on the Sabbath. Now this is tricky. I need you to see what's happening between the Pharisees and Jesus. Um, My job requires me sitting with you a lot. We sit in coffee shops, hospital rooms. We talk through leadership. We continue to uh, go through discipleship, whatever it is, counseling, whatever it is. So I sit a lot. I I have a day and a half devoted in my schedule to studying a passage in the Bible for us to prepare on Sunday. I don't want to sit. And so because I work with my mind and my emotions, I rest with my hands. And hear me. I lay down on Friday night, and then Saturday, I'm exhausted, and it feels so good. Like, I lay down, my back is so sore from moving those pavers. I love it. Now, what the legalist does is the legalist looks at Sean in that moment and goes, but you're working. You see, you're working. You're doing manual labor. That's not okay. And I'm going, but wait a minute. Hold on, hold on. It's not working. That's the issue. Am I doing something that drains me? I don't answer emails. I try to keep my phone low key. I'm doing something that gives me life. What the legalist does is define the sin boundaries. Do you see? So in this moment, what they have is in the Mishnah, this added parts of this law, they say, here's how we honor the Sabbath. Just to be safe, let's put parameters around it. So you're not allowed to work. You know what counts as work? Walking. You can only walk a certain amount of steps. You know what counts as work? Cooking. You can only cook this certain things. They are defining through legalism how, what, when, where. We do this all the time. We're going to talk about that at the end. But in the end, what Jesus is doing is he is pointing to the Sabbath to say, no, 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 It's meant to give life. It's meant to give life. And, and, and just the last thing I'll say, can you just see what, this is how bizarre this is? The Pharisees are taking something that is meant to give life, And they are using it to keep someone in death. I mean, that, uh, we're going to unpack that at the end. So that's what's going on with the Sabbath. Let's keep going. Next four words are important after Jesus' question. But they were silent. Studying and seeing how compassionate Jesus is. And I've been extremely convicted to look at the other over and over and over. But Jesus has a whole range of emotions. Yes, compassion is one of them. And in this moment, what we're going to find is we're going to now begin to let the pendulum move a little bit. And we're going to see, yes, Jesus is absolutely compassionate in his love. But you also want to know what love is? Love sometimes shows its way out in anger. Crazy. And so Jesus asks this question, here's a man with the withered hand. I could heal him. But you've got your laws. Is it right on the Sabbath to bring life? Or should I let this death abound in his hand? And they say nothing. And they're there silent. And here is Jesus' response. Verse 5. And he looked around at them with anger. He looked around at them. Now, now you've got to be in it. What does that mean? Like, try to, try to enter into the text. What is Jesus doing? Or is, or, I don't know, like, or is... His fists clenched, or his eyes fiery, his his muscles in his face tightened. He's looking around. What is Jesus showing in this moment as he looks around with them in anger? Because that is part of the Jesus we've given our life to. He is mad. He's mad. Again, verse 5. And he looked around at them with anger. So here's uh, what I want to say. Three things on this. Um, One... I want you to know that Jesus in this moment is absolutely consistent with um, the God of the Old Testament. Meaning, um, as we read the Old Testament, and we talk about Jesus as a fulfillment of, of what, who this God is. I mean, we see it perfectly found in Jesus. Uh, and what I mean by that is, what we can ask the question, what is he angry about? Is he angry that they're turning the law around? Is he angry that they keep trying to trap him? Maybe all those things, but it seems clear that he's obviously angry that here's this man who needs help. And they, because of their reasons, their man-made reasons, they don't want to help. And he's angry at this. And what we find in the Old Testament a lot is that God over and over and over sees the religiousness of his people and the neglects Of the marginalized, and he gets mad a lot. You wanna know why I don't hear you? Yeah, you fasted for 30 days, but here's somebody who's poor and about to die because they don't have any food, and you don't wanna take care of them. He's mad. This is so consistent with the narrative of the Old Testament. And Jesus, in a fulfillment, looks at the Pharisees, and he's mad for these same reasons. Now, um, because of the way that we operate, we have to begin to define anger a little bit, Um, and so I have a list that I grabbed from Paul Miller in this part that I think is helpful. So just to be clear, when we talk about our anger and Jesus' anger and how it's probably different, I don't want to just throw out the, well, he's got righteous anger. There's more to it than that. Um, So first of all, our anger... Most likely, we're not going to let it go. I'm just going to read this list for the sake of time. So we're going to keep that anger alive. Um, usually, when we're angry, we're verbally attacking or maybe even inside us just berating that person. We're attacking somebody. Uh, the third thing is, with our anger, usually we get angrier as the situation goes on, probably more than the situation warrants. Um, we don't control our anger on our worst days, right? So we end up acting out of our anger in wrongful ways when, when, when we're in a bad moments, um, Far too often, what I have found personally in my own self is I'm angry too quick. Like I get angry too quick before I know the whole narrative. And then this is important. Most of the time, if you can kind of Rolodex in your mind all the times you've been angry, I would probably bet 95% of those times are self-motivation. Someone is stopping you. Uh, You're angry because you have this. There's a frustration because something is blocked. Whatever it is, someone says something about you, it's self-motivated. What we find here uh, is how Jesus avoids these things is really beautiful. Here's this other list. Notice in the text, he's restrained, so he's not overreactive. His anger, his anger shows uh, through his looking. Uh, he's focused on the needs of a crippled man. He keeps the attention there. Uh, he's angry, but he's honest. He's not denying. He's not, oh, no, I'm not angry. So just to be clear, when we talk about Jesus, there's no passive-aggressive Jesus, Okay. So Jesus is angry, and he's going to let you know he's angry. He's either going to flip over a table, he's going to try to whip you with like something like, you know what I mean, he's going to make this cord, or in this anger. So just to be clear for synopsis, there are good reasons to be angry, and there are bad reasons to be angry. And I think the best way you can begin to decipher good anger and bad anger is looking at the other and seeing the mistreatment from the people of God towards this person. And that should rile something within you, hear me. You should get mad at injustice. From the big things to the small things. It's, listen, it's not right the way that sex uh, 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 trafficking goes down. It's not right from uh, sweatshops. It's not right, but it's also not right for someone to park in the handicapped spot when they don't have a handicap sign. All these things. Injustice across the board from the smallest thing to the largest thing. It's, it's good. You, you get angry in those moments because you're made in the image of God, and God gets angry in those moments. That here are people who suppress others. That's not okay. That should make you angry. But there's also this whole other scheme of bad anger, which we find with the Pharisees a lot, which is, I have an agenda. I want to do what I want to do. And and something is stopping it. So Jesus is angry, but saddened. I'm saddened, or I cry, or whatever it is, um, because I look with pity on all the people that I see. So let me make that statement again. I'm saddened because I look with pity on all of the people I see. Now, in that statement, just here, this is going to be important. The structure of that statement says that the former is, uh, or the latter is beginning to, or I'm sorry, the former is beginning to define or give action to the latter. Because I look at these faces, it makes me sad. Because I look at all these faces with pity, it makes me sad. Jesus in this moment is looking around with anger, Because he's, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. We've got to learn this from Jesus. Here are his enemies trying to trap him, here's someone he disagrees with, and he is mad. Rightfully so, he's mad at what he sees. But he's mad because he loves them. He's mad because in this moment, he grieves over the fact that they're literally looking. They're they're like, look at this man. How much better could his life be in this moment if his hand was restored? And your heart is so hardened, you, you can't even see that this would be better for him. It doesn't affect you at all. No, it doesn't hurt you at all, but your heart is so hardened. This is terrible. I hate this. I hate that you can't see this because he cares. He's angry. So so, so listen, um, to those of you who care desperately about your thing, right? We, we prayed and spent time last week looking at like, just processing, praying over the whole issues of abortion. And as we did this, it is so easy in a moment where somebody may post something or a friend goes, man, we just need to get Planned Parenthood more money. We just need to continue to help them do this. Women's rights, blah, blah, blah. It is easy in that moment, rightfully so, to be angry. But the right response from Jesus is not anger for anger's sake, but angry because you're looking at this person and you go, I wish you got it. I, I wish you, you could see, I wish you knew, but you're blinded. Maybe you're choosing blindness. Maybe, maybe the spirit of this age is blinding you. I don't know fully what's going on, but it hurts that you are so hard-hearted in this issue. This is with issue, I mean, across culturally, if we could learn to sit at the table and be angry, that's fine. At the things that the opposing side is angry at. We see this all the time with the social justice warrior and the conservative. Right, here they are, blah, 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 berating someone, berating someone. They don't care about the other. They don't care about the marginalized. And you want to go, I don't think you care about them. Like, like you're all about in this moment, hate, hate, hate. They're hating, they're hating, they're hating. Man, it sure seems like you got a lot of hate in your heart for them. That's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is to care. I love what Martin Luther King says. He says this, it's unloving to leave the oppressor in their state. To even be at this moment, Jesus is hurt. He feels something for these Pharisees. He eventually ends up weeping over the people of Israel. He cares about them. So, yes and amen to being angry. Yes and amen to being angry at someone for doing something that is unjust. But if it is not growing out of a place of grief for them, be careful. Jesus gives us a template here that's clear: Care about those who don't care. Let's keep going. The next part is interesting. Um, as we kind of finish out this verse five. Um, you know I've been trying to nail down the fact that Jesus is always doing something that we don't um, don't fully know. He's doing a million things, and this one might be the coolest, okay so and the Bible nerds are going to like this. Everyone else can be like, I don't know what you're talking about, but just listen, okay? And he said to the man, so he's frustrated. He's grieved at their hardest of a heart. He says, you know what? I'm going to heal this dude. He brings over the man, okay? And this is what happens. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored, okay? Now, that just feels like, cool. (laughs) I think, Jesus. I'm going to contend that Jesus is doing far more than just healing this man. But caring for the people, he's trying to show them. Caring for the Pharisees, he's trying to show them something. Okay, stretch out your hand. We may just think it's a normal statement, but not to the Jews. Seventeen times in the Exodus accounts, you read the term, stretch out your hand usually used for Moses, God over and over. The Jews are aware of the fact that God uses Moses predominantly to stretch out his hand for something to happen to rescue his people. Now, what's interesting is as you read the Bible, you have um, the, the Sabbath mentioned in, in uh, Genesis 2, Genesis tw- uh, Exodus 20, then Exodus 31. Deuteronomy, which, if you know anything of your Old Testament, tends to line up. It's kind of like this parallel account at certain points with the other uh, Old Testament books before it. And what we find in Deuteronomy 31 is the same declaration of the Ten Commandments, but worded a little bit differently. Track with me. This is a lot of Bible stuff, but track with me. This is what it says. In in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 5, I'm sorry, not 31, chapter 5, it says this. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. He goes on, sixth day, so on and so forth, gives him direction for the ox and your sons and daughters, all that stuff. He says, nor any foreigner uh, residing in your town so that male and female servants may rest as you do. So honor the Sabbath. Then listen to this. This is tagged on to the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. What Moses does is he connects what's supposed to be happening on the Sabbath to the Exodus. That life was given. You were rescued out of slavery. In this moment, they know the correlation over and over as Moses stretches out his hand. God gives an outstretched arm over and over. In this moment, Jesus is going, you want to see something? You want to play games? You want to use this man as a pawn? You want to talk about this man? Let's talk. Stretch out your hand. And in this moment, boom, 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 all these dominoes have to begin to fall. You were brought out of slavery, right? Connect this. Listen, here I am. I'm the greater Moses. He, he, here I am. This is a bigger sign of freedom. He, he's putting all these dots together. Now, I get all kinds of jacked about it. You guys don't seem as me, so I'm just going to move on. Okay? <laughs> I, I, I will say this, though. I will say this. Um, in the book of Matthew, it uses that the hand was uh, restored and made healthy again, which I would argue Matthew is correlating this man to the, the book of Genesis. Different narrative, but now in this, he's, he's correlating it to a restoration, a restoring. All right. Let me finish with this. Um... So not only have I been trying to show what Jesus has, uh, is doing, a million different things that we don't know, but on top of that, um, I wanted to leave us with what are we supposed to do with this? So here's the story of a man with a withered hand. It's, it's healed. Jesus is having grief over these Pharisees. What are we supposed to do with this? And even before that, what's, what's this do to our own souls? How do we process this? And I think verse 6 actually gives us a little bit of insight to both. Listen to verse 6. It says this. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Let me read it again. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This requires some context. The Jews are the pious of people. They are the religious of the religious. They do everything right. Not only do they honor the Sabbath, they do the things that honor the honor the honor of the Sabbath. Okay? And what we have now on the other side is these Herodians. The, the, the Pharisees team up with the Herodians to destroy Jesus. Now, we don't know as much about the Herodians as we do, so let me tell you a little bit about, about them. The Herodians are the patriots of our day. They're the Belichicks and the Bradys. They're the sinners. They're terrible human beings, okay? And so, so, so hear me. They, they, are, they are like, they are hedonists to, to the max. And what they have is the Herodians go, they want to party, they want to live their life, they want to do their own things. In this moment... The legalists team up with those who are licentious. The legalists team up with the key players of the sinful world to destroy Jesus. Neither of them like Jesus. And so let me put in front of you this. Some of you are sitting here and yes and amen. You go like the Herodians. I have my life. I don't really like Jesus because he tells me what to do. And I'm telling you all he is trying to do is restore that right hand. He's trying to give you life back. Everywhere he goes, he's bringing the kingdom. And you may feel it as subjugation, but it's not its life. But the other person is interesting too. And I think actually we correlate to this other person, that, the Pharisees in this text. Um, and I think it finds its, its way in two ways, in the negative and the positive. In the negative, um, some of you have continued to put binds uh, uh, around people and chains around people because you define sin a certain way. You get to define the euphemisms. You get to define what movies you watch. You get to define what music. All the while, they're going, but wait a minute, I don't feel like that's harming my spirituality. And maybe one day they will figure it out. But you control the reins, and you're the legalist. In the negative, you get to control the narrative. How many times have I said this? What movies, what music, what people, over and over. Whether they can go to bars, what atmospheres they can be in. You control. Nowhere in scripture is in you. I I read this text, and it goes, oh, that makes Jesus angry. That makes Jesus so angry, because in this moment, someone is is listening to something, someone is watching something, and they're going, man, this is amazing. They're hanging out with someone, and it's giving them life. And maybe you don't fully understand, but hear me, you're not the deciding factor. Jesus did not leave and say, hey, I'm going to go, but don't worry, John's coming after me. No. As he left, he gave us the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit does. Now, that's the negative. I think the legalist in the room is also found in the positive. And I have been there, homie. I mean, man, over and over, I found myself preaching on Mill Avenue, traveling to Africa and to Europe and to Asia to build churches and to build homes and then coming home and not knowing my neighbor's name to standing in grocery lines and never bringing up the gospel. I chose to be a Christian there, but not here. I chose over and over and over to exhibit what I wanted people to see. And in the positive, I was willing to preach the gospel and do all of that over here. But man, in this moment, no, that's legalism. Borderline hypocrisy. So be all in, be who that is, be a Christian or don't. Because in, in, in that way, all we're exhibiting is the Pharisee who like, puffs himself up, prays for the attention, wears the wardrobe, and puts on the show. That's not our call. That's not who we are. That's what Jesus is grieving over. So then, if that's what we're supposed to do within our own soul, and I would challenge the legalist and those in the room who would say, I don't want anything to do with Jesus, I would challenge you, please, return to the cross. Um, okay. There are right moments to get angry. Um, I just want to give a few things that I've seen culturally that I think are appropriate for us to get angry about. Um, It's hurt a lot. I think for us as elders, there have been moments where um, you see a Facebook post or um, you hear something and it's far more political with the subjugation of the asylum seeker or um, somebody who says something and it it feels like a, I want to be careful. Actually, yeah, I'm just going to say it for what it is. Um, let me give you an example of this. This is where I'll finish. I honestly wasn't planning on saying this, Vince, so don't get mad at me for saying it, okay? Um, he, so so um, I got an email a few months back. Here's how this works. Um, when someone is crossing over the border... Um, they are taken into custody, and they're put into these cages, these makeshift uh, jails. And as they're put into these jails, they are given a court date, okay? So they're probably in these jails, these, these cages for a couple weeks, and then what happens is they're given this court date about three months out, and they are allowed to reside in America um, for that period of time. It could be three months, five months, it could be two months. So they're saying, okay, you got it, but you got to return back here to your court date. So what ICE does is they have all these people, and they don't know what to do with these people. And so what you have is you have um, these people who are essentially, let's say, picked up in Arizona somewhere, they need to go to the Greyhound station or the airport, but most likely the Greyhound station. And they need to go to this Greyhound station because they need to find family members in Nebraska, in Kansas, in Washington, wherever it is. Well, there's a few options. One, ICE, who's packed with people, can just drop them off at the Greyhound station and for two or three days, they can stay at the Greyhound station. Or they can reach out to churches. That's exactly what they did. They reached out to churches, and they said, can you guys house these people just for a few days? It's legal. We're we're the government. We're dropping them off. Can you you just drop them off? And can can you just find people to house them? And so Candace and I and others in our church, I won't say who they are, have chosen to do this. So we've done it, you know, taken in three different families. And what I see when this happens is, eh, it's like you see a mom. She's got this like five-year-old little boy. Like she's walked thousands of miles and like, she's like avoided sex traffickers and probably maybe even been raped on the way. (laughs) Like, how do you not have compassion on this person? And then you like, look around and you see members in your church who are like angry that they're here and they have all these reasons why they're here. And they're they're mad at the people who would take them in. And so like, we'll get emails And like phone calls from people like we're devil worshipers and we hate America and we're just going, our government asks for help. These people need help and we're trying to do our best. But here it's help and a believer in Jesus Christ cares more about political piety than they do this woman or this person. And maybe there are right reasons. Maybe we don't know where they're going. I don't know, but I feel stuck in that moment. And so hear me, it's right to step in. It's okay to step into moments. Even if it means the legalist says you're wrong, it's okay to step into moments and fight injustice. The cost of comfort is worth it. And so I would challenge us as believers in Jesus Christ. It's not just the asylum seekers. It's anybody who feels marginalized. It's the panhandlers. It's those who you would begin to judge from afar. Let us step in those moments and be truly Christ followers the way Christ follows and love those who don't like it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. Thanks for your goodness and your grace towards us. Um, We are extremely mindful right now of Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, in that, um, Jesus, you exhibit as the perfect human. Our man-made laws suppresses that life, stomps it out. This makes you angry, and I pray that it would make us angry. That when there are opportunities for us to bring life to someone, that we would do it unabashedly. I pray that we would step in, to the situations of the sinful woman, to the man with the withered hand, to the blind man, to the widow of Nain. And there may be things that we don't fully understand, but we can at least look what's right in front of us. This human being, this image bearer of God needs help. We may not understand all the systemic brokenness. We may not understand all the political jargon, but we know right in front of us, this person needs help. I pray that you would give us boldness. I pray that you would show us in the areas... Where we're legalists, where we're sinners, I pray that you would help us continue to fight for those who can't fight for themselves, from those who are unborn to those who are born to those who are adults trying to survive. I pray that you would help us identify them, come alongside them, and be who you are. And then I pray that we would grieve over those who don't like it. I pray that we would care deeply. deeply. We, we, those people would matter that we would come walk alongside them, that we would hear why it upsets them, when we try to understand why it upsets them. May we be that kind of people, that kind of church. I pray that blessing over us. We love you. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen.